Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm one of the members here at Crescent Church, and it's my privilege to open up uh, 1 Peter, the passage that Neville has read to us this morning. Uh, I think it's probably fair to say that if you speak to most people under the age of 35 in Belfast today, the gospel message to them seems ridiculous. It seems implausible. Our values now in 2020 Belfast are pleasure, experience, stuff. So how do we reach a, a society that, that doesn't want to hear the message of the gospel? What's God's strategy, if you like, to break through with the good news of Jesus Christ? It is a joy, isn't it, to, to, to see someone come to know Jesus Christ in the scriptures, to see them uh, hear the preaching of the gospel or to, to discuss the scriptures with them over coffee and, and see new life come as the scriptures takes them to Jesus. But how is my colleague who needs 25 hours in the day to keep all this, the, 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 the plates of, of life spinning going to, to make time to come to Christianity Explored? Or, or, or how's your, your, your mate at uni who's gay and thinks that God hates them and, and, and she also probably hates God right now, going to take the time to tune in to hear the word of God preached. In fact, it's more likely that they're going to be suspicious of you and your Christian faith. With the ever-increasing false stereotypes and misrepresentation in the, the media, they're going to assume that you're some sort of bigoted and meddlesome Ned Flanders. Well, Peter's instruction in this letter is, is not to retreat in such an environment, and nor is it to shout louder. But in this passage, he's going to tell us to live good lives, ordinary Christian lives, as a way to break through with the gospel. In verse number 11, the first verse that Neville read to us, Peter again uses the imagery for, for us as Christians, as sojourners, as exilers, as exiles. We're, we're travelers with temporary visas. We don't invest everything in life here. And we're a bit uncomfortable because we're foreigners. We don't quite fit in. But while we're here, in verse number 12, this really sums up the point of the passage. The NIV puts it like this in verse number 12. Live such good lives among the nations, the pagans, so that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Live such good lives that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So I want to unpack this, this passage with two points. We want to look at living good lives first and foremost by submitting to authority for the sake of God. And secondly, live good lives by willing to being willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus. So firstly, live good lives in the sight of all through submission for God's sake. Now more than ever, as we've considered in Northern Ireland, what we do is going to be considered and watched before what we say will ever be listened to. And people may be at first unwilling to open their ears, but their eyes are going to be fixed on us. And particularly when we're faced with hostile or difficult environments, what are they going to see before what they're going to hear. Well, the key repeated instruction for goodness throughout the passage is be subject. Verse 13, 
be subject. Verse 14, or 18, be subject. Verse number one of chapter three, likewise, wives, be subject. It's sort of summarized there in verse number 13. Be, be subject to every human institution. In, in living good lives in, in the sight of others, it's going to require that we model submission, a willingness to obey and acknowledge and take authority in the structures within society. And critically in verse number 13, it's for the Lord's sake. And this is continually restated. This is the will of God, verse number 15. Being mindful of God, verse number 19. Behaving in the sight of God, verse number 20. And again, verse number 4 of chapter 3. Peter's concern is, yes, what the world out there sees as it looks in. But the motivation, first and foremost, before what they see on a horizontal direction, is what the Lord desires to see in the vertical dimension. And so our good behavior, it's not merely a respectable, a respectable show that we put on, but our goodness finds its source in him. And so it can be authentically traced back to our heavenly father. In this passage, Peter obviously expects that there's going to be areas of common good, if you like, where we're going to overlap with a secular culture and Christian behavior. And they're going to recognize it as good. And, and one of the buzzwords I hear all the time in the work uh, is this word authenticity. Marketers continually bang on about sincerity and integrity and transparency. These are the virtues that batch coffee drinking millennials want to have in their brands and in their workplaces and relationships. And that's an opportunity, surely, isn't it, for us to connect and to show that Christian good behavior authentically comes from a God who is authentically good. Any measure of, of graciousness that we, we might show isn't because of our genetic nature or our nurtured upbringing. It's because of the, the heaps of grace that God has lavished upon us. And so too with our submission. It's not just to be seen or to be pious or, or to be merely compliant, but it's because we love and worship a God who at his core submitted for the good of others. So it's not going to be based on our temperament. Goodness, no. Many of us are not naturally tepid. Submission doesn't come easy. It's not thoughtless or apathetic. But we willingly submit to the authorities that God has for his sake, so that his reputation and, and making him known so that people would see Jesus more clearly. So let's look at the specific examples that Peter here gives. He's going to talk about government, he's going to talk about the workplace, and he's going to talk about marriage. First and foremost, the emperor or the, the queen and their government. Authority is there by God's design to keep law and order. And God Given, God's given them a purpose to, to punish the wicked and to reward what is right. And, and I suppose just like our new 21st century society, the old Roman society was very similar in that it was pluralistic. That is to say, it, it, it welcomed all gods and belief systems. 
And so to stand up and to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, the one Lord, well, that would actually make people feel a little bit uncomfortable, wary perhaps, even suspicious. And I highlight the point because that's going to become more and more the case here, isn't it? As Christianity becomes more of a minority view in public life and in our country, we're going to be continually more probed and held in suspicion, portrayed perhaps as problematic for a new modern society. And so Peter says we're going to have to overcome that misrepresentation, not give anyone that excuse. At a minimum, we're going to have to be good law-abiding citizens. But he also implies here a greater doing of good, a positive commitment to more than just our own family's needs, our own church family's needs, but to the wider community as servants of God for the good of the city. And so, of course, we need to be good neighbours. We need to continually be involved in the front lines of showing care and compassion to society's most vulnerable, whether it be food banks or or Christians Against Poverty, uh, international welcome, or pregnancy crisis and hospital ministries, to name but a few. Our submission to government and our doing good in society, that is God's will so that we can silence critics and represent Jesus Christ well in 2020. Even this current crisis, isn't it? An opportunity to show that a watching world that we're obedient to the government's rules for the good of others. Peter then narrows down into two key relationships that sort of form the basis of the majority of, of, of our everyday life, the workplace and marriage. Everyone knew back then, as they do now, that these settings, these relationships, they really constitute the backbone of a strong and stable society. And so it's in these mundane settings, if you like, the daily grind that Peter says we're called to do eternal business. And in these two crucial areas, the message we preach is going to be judged by how we behave. More specifically, he addresses a Christian slave who, who may be working in a non-Christian environment or a Christian wife who's married to a non-Christian husband. And of course, these two examples in particular, uh, these contexts, these people are going to be watched. Will the Christian slave rebel? Will a Christian wife be disloyal? I guess for us, it's sort of like, will a Christian at work lack sufficient commitment to the, to the good of others in the company? Or will a newly converted spouse in a relationship be drawn away from her marriage responsibilities? If so, then they can hardly be trusted and the message can't be taken seriously. In both situations, Peter's urging is to submit with appropriate respect. Firstly, then, work life. A significant number of Peter's recipients would have been household slaves. And think of the magnificent description that he has given them in what they've received in becoming God's people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And yet, even though that transformation has happened in their lives, that's no reason not to obey their earthly masters. And Peter's realistic. It's going to be hard going sometimes. They're going to be treated unfairly. But continue to submit. Continue in doing good in the workplace. 
And in that testing situation, Peter reminds them that this is grace before God. It might not feel like it, but that is the position of God's favour and love, the place of proper submission. And we need to be realistic about it too, don't we? At work, we're going to be asked to put this principle to the test. We all have bosses, managers, shareholders, boards that we're answerable to. And sometimes they can be difficult, unruly, and sometimes even incompetent. But yet we're called to submit with all respect. I don't know what it might look like for you in your work. Perhaps submission might be accepting a new role, restructuring in a COVID-19 world. It may be as simple as just taking on more paperwork or, or being willing to train the younger staff. Wouldn't it be just great if there was always a sense that, that you know what, it's good to work with you. You're easy to work with. You're good to work with. So there will be times when the, the boss asks us to, to stay late, to work on that project or perfect that pitch. And, and you might think it's unreasonable. He's being a perfectionist. The job's sort of done. It might even be church prayer meeting or home group that night. But if it's a direct request, I think you have to stay. We have not to be, to be known as the complainer, as the, the obstacle to change, or the one who has to be managed along. No, we're submissive at work so that people see and realize there's something different about you. And it means that when you have the opportunity to explain your Christian hope or invite them to tune in on a Sunday to hear the word of God preached, they have no reason not to take you seriously. The same principle of submission for God's sake is true, although perhaps even harder in marriage and home life. The specific context of a mixed marriage is hard. This Christian wife, she'll be particularly watched by her friends and in-laws. But Peter's instruction to her is the same as what it is for every Christian wife, that she must submit to her own husband. Now, submission is not because she's inferior in her intellect or morality or emotionally or spiritually. It's the restoration of the, the kind of relationship that God originally intended from the beginning of a, for a husband and for a wife. Like we've thought about, it's not based on temperament or personality, but it's a, a thoughtful, voluntary Submission, a choice for the Lord's reputation to complement your husband with your unique strengths and gifts and personality and talents so that you'd be connected as a, a whole. The role of submission, not competition to lead. And although Peter doesn't go into the specifics, I know it raises a lot of practical questions that each and every couple will have to work out. But it's ultimately the union of two flawed individuals at its very heart is in the heart of God's plan to transform society. And so wives are called to submit to their husbands, not just because it's the expectation of society, but that their faithfulness and their commitment and their inner beauty might point an unbelieving or even an immature husband 
and watching society to her Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It is liberating to consider this imperishable beauty of inner womanhood that Peter talks about, precious and valued by God. Ours is a, an insta-saturated world where we get daily ideas and destructive portrayals of what true womanhood is presented with filters and Photoshop work. Here, Peter says, a, a Christian woman's focus is something lasting. A Christian wife focuses on, on, on true and inner beauty that doesn't fade away, that of a gentle and quiet spirit, a spirit that's not grasping or coveting after worldly things, a spirit that worships and develops eternal characteristics that will last, faith, love, and of course, hope. And Peter knows it's not going to be easy. It's not natural in this broken world. And so he concludes his word to, to women and to, to wives in verse number six. Do good and do not fear. Fear often lies at the heart of our, our sin response. And it will take great courage from wives to stand against the endless pursuit in the world of physical beauty, of competition, of, of getting more stuff. And so godly women and faithful wives will need to be fearless and strong in pursuing this good. Our final verse, verse number seven, Peter turns to, to husbands and says, likewise, husbands. Often we husbands in the New Testament are instructed to love our wives. But here we have the other side of, of the coin. Live with your wives in an understanding way or literally according to knowledge. Knowledge and love are, are often interwoven in the Bible because you can't love someone really well if you don't know them really well. And the application, I think, is plain, isn't it? Husbands, we need to take more time to get to know our wives. If we want to love them like Jesus, to love them self-sacrificially, we have to know them well. Wives are not there to provide an ego boost. They're not a complex problem to be solved or a voice even to be appeased. They are a complementary partner to be known and loved. And Peter knows that we've been created differently. God has so designed it in a way that we're different so that we're more interdependent and that the, the union of man and woman might express the very image of God. And so, of course, we're going to have strengths and different weaknesses. Husbands, get to know them, he says, so that you can best love and support your wife. He references particularly physical weakness. Support your wife and show honour. We're called to these roles, to build marriages in a society that is given over to selfishness and personal ambition. But it's as co-heirs, he says, for the eternal inheritance that lies ahead. We stand together on this journey, husband and wife, shoulder to shoulder, in submission and love, reflecting the beauty of God who has saved us and made us one flesh. 
So live good lives in the sight of all, firstly, by submitting to authority for God's sake. But secondly, live good lives in the sight of all, willing to suffer unfairness for Jesus' sake. I've purposely not majored on the key thing that runs through each one of these different scenarios and settings. And that is that of suffering unfairly. This great calling to to make God known through the ordinary goodness of Christian life through submission at one level is really not attractive at all. It's it's not appealing. It's a path that will be hard, unfair and, and at times just plain painful being subject to to government, like ungodly authorities that that may pressurize, marginalize, persecute you, it's going to be suffering. Being submissive to slaves, especially in first century Rome, Peter says it's possible that you're going to suffer and be beaten unjustly at the hands of a wicked and cruel master, but be prepared to endure a marriage too. It's surely why Sarah is cited here in verse number six as an example of a submissive wife. Abraham, for all of his strengths, was not a great husband and not a great family decision maker. And Sarah was put in the position where for her to choose to back her husband and to submit to him would come at great personal cost and hardship. And of course, without a godly balanced marriage union it can become a place of despair and hardship so how can we endure this unfairness that we're being called to if if our submission and and living these good ordinary christian lives what happens if they don't seem to be making a difference to people how do we keep it up how do we keep going well at the heart of this passage in verse 21 to 25 Peter points us to the greatest suffering servant, Jesus Christ. As I read this passage, I've struggled with it because it makes me feel vulnerable, in in danger of being under the heel of society, exposed. But that's exactly how the Son of God became like us. And he is our true model for how to live submissively, and yet with incredible significance. How to endure the most oppressive of circumstances and yet for eternal, abundant joy. In this, these five verses, they're full of quotes and allusions to Isaiah 53. And it's as, as if Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 53 gives sense and clarity to Peter as he thinks back on the Lord Jesus and recounts the path that Jesus took that night of his crucifixion from the garden, through the unjust courts, through the cruel soldiers' barracks, out to the place of the skull to die a slave's death. He endured physical abuse, but verbal mockery. Think what they called him. The very embodiment of goodness stood before us. What injustice. And what was his response? He did not sin. He did not retaliate. 
He didn't lie or deceive when he was put on the spot or under pressure like we so naturally do. He, he didn't meet their aggression with threats of his own. Jesus accepted it with silence. But in faith, he entrusted himself to the judgment of God. That's the steps of Jesus that we're called to follow in. His, his silence wasn't weakness, nor was it a sort of pardon for everyone who carried out the injustice. But he had a bigger vision. He had an eternal perspective. And he himself didn't seek vengeance because he knew he could trust God's justice. And he didn't save himself because he was fulfilling the divine plan to save multitudes of people. And in verse 21, Peter uses the word for example. It's the same word that is used for a pattern of letters that you would give to a child to trace out to learn the alphabet. It suggests something that, that should be copied to the, the closest detail. He is our example like that. Not one example out of a range of options, but the example. His and his only are the footsteps we're called to walk in. And of course, we'll want to strike back. We'll want to speak out. But that would be a small-minded human response and a failure to trust God's justice as we try and seek vengeance now and not wait for God's timing. Our respectful submission to governments in work at home, it might require unfair suffering, but it's not pointless heartache. It's us following in the saving path of Jesus Christ. And what's more, verse 24, Jesus bore our sins. By, by crucifixion, he went to the, 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 he was brought to the lowest of the low and he, he paid that price, that unbelievable price for all of our sin and wickedness so that we wouldn't have any more part in it. No part in bitterness or revenge or rebellion but rather we would be free to live righteously, to submit, to be faithful, to be patient, endure, to wait on God. And I don't know, maybe this morning you're listening and you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian. Consider verse 24 carefully. Jesus took upon himself the full weight of sin, all the hurt you have caused others, all the mistakes you've let go and can't get back, the wrongs you've committed. He, completely undeserving of all of it, stood in the firing line, took it upon himself, suffered the tremendous totality of it all so you can go free. He was willing to suffer the greatest injustice so that you can be free from sin and guilt and death and live a life of freedom and goodness. And yes, it won't be easy, but don't you want to follow a master like that? And Christian, as I've said before, this passage can make us feel vulnerable and the whole book is written to those who, who just feel exposed and in a risky, precarious position in this hostile world as foreigners and exiles. But listen to how Peter finishes chapter 2. By his wounds you've been healed. The lethal physical wounds of Jesus have have healed our lethal spiritual sickness and, and we like wandering sheep have now been brought back. We've returned and we're under the watchful eye of our shepherd as we follow in his footsteps 
what safety, what protection, what security and deliverance. So keep on doing good, even if it brings about unfair suffering. Do not wander off from Christ. God has made us secure. Whatever the circumstances and trials, we follow Jesus who himself suffered the ultimate injustice and yet lives and leads our way on forward. So as we close, live such good lives in the sight of all, submitting to the authority for God's sake and being willing to suffer on fairness for Jesus' sake. All the grand truth that Peter has been expounding in the first part of his letter, our new birth, our eternal inheritance, our our place in the people of God and God's spiritual temple, it all boils down to the daily grind. And strong, consistent, Christ-like, Christian character, that sort of living is exactly the God's strategy to break through in our rapidly changing post-Christian Belfast in 2020. So as we place our feet in the footsteps of Jesus, he takes us on the path that yes, we'll go to the cross and the grave, but then we'll ultimately go to eternal glory. He is our living hope. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your wonderful salvation. And if the past sufferings of Jesus Christ are a present reality for us today, we look forward to the day when the present glory that Jesus Christ has at your right hand and with you in heaven will be our future reality. Strengthen and encourage us to to represent you well in this rapidly changing society And may it all be for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. To close, we're going to sing the song, I Will Offer Up My Life, which has been recorded for us by the Crescent Music Team.